All right, flip open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4, we're going to look at verses 11 through 16. We will be talking this morning about the ecclesia. Let's uh, stand together for the reading of God's word. Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 11. These are the words of God. And he himself gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all maintain, or excuse me, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the full knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ, so that we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, that is, Christ, from whom the whole body, being joined and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the properly measured working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, draw us close by your Holy Spirit. As the scriptures are read and the word is proclaimed, may the word of faith be on our lips and in our hearts, and let all other words slip away. May there be one voice we hear today, the voice of truth and grace, Christ, our great shepherd, and amen. amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> well, today is Pentecost Sunday, also known as the Feast of Weeks, and in the Old Testament, it comes seven weeks after Passover. In Leviticus 23, God instructed the Israelites to hold an annual harvest feast just once a year to commemorate their journey to the temple for the first fruits harvest offering. So back in Leviticus, that was the main uh, understanding of this feast of weeks, Shavuot. It was for the harvest festival. Now, later Jews, and by later Jews, I simply mean uh, those after the Babylonian exile, later Jews observed Pentecost in connection with the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. And in Exodus 19.18, there was a fiery revelation of God that took place. So when we get to the New Testament time, the time of Christ, the time of the apostles, Pentecost was the day when God poured out his Holy Spirit on the church at Jerusalem, tongues of fire and all, which emboldened them as a result for the mission, including the ability to speak in tongues, so the, the ability to proclaim truth and, and engaging in different languages and people being able to hear and understand, gave them the ability to prophesy and to teach and preach the gospel message. This was the baptism of the Holy Spirit that was promised by Christ while the disciples were gathered together in someone's home awaiting further instructions. You remember Jesus said to go back to Jerusalem and wait. I'm going to send the helper. So they were just waiting. And while they were waiting, this is what took place in Acts 2. Now the language of Exodus 19.18 
is present here in Acts 2, indicating that Luke, who he's the author of Acts, Luke understood this to be a Mount Sinai 2.0. So what happened on Pentecost Sunday in Acts 2 was a Mount Sinai 2.0. It was a covenant renewal with the church. It was a fulfillment of Joel chapter 2. And it was a fresh wind and fresh fire of God's new presence in the people of God. Now, Ezekiel, you remember the prophet Ezekiel, he saw Yahweh leave the temple. He saw the glory of God leave the temple. Now, but the Pentecost Christians experienced his return. So that's how we're supposed to read Acts chapter 2. Yahweh left the temple, and in Pentecost Sunday, Yahweh came to the temple. But it was obviously a different temple. Fifty days, uh, hence Pentecost, fifty days after Resurrection Sunday, was the application of Christ's benefits to the church for the sake of the gospel mission. So 50 days from ago from today was Resurrection Sunday. And that was the moment where the application of all those benefits that Christ gave the church, his death, his substitutionary death, his, his resurrection from the dead, all of those benefits were deposited to the church here in an official Holy Spirit-filled manner. Now, in one sense, the church began with Adam because the, uh, the air quotes church is simply a way of speaking about covenant membership in the people of God for all times and all places. So when did the church begin? Well, we might be tempted to say Acts 2. Well, yes, in one sense, that was a new uh, historical revelation of God. But we can also say in another sense, the church started with Adam and Eve. They were the ones in covenant with God. But here, Pentecost symbolized the renewal of the new covenant people of God as the Holy Spirit took up residence inside them in order to make them living stones in his new temple. So when we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit, we too are baptized in the Holy Spirit and we are brought into the new covenant arrangement. We become living stones in this temple. Now, the, the purpose of this series is to answer the question, what is the church? That's the purpose of this series. What is the church? Even more, we can ask, well, what is the church supposed to do? The series itself, I, I'm calling it Ecclesiastical Schematics. I want you to sound like you're chewing gravel when you say it. Ecclesiastical Schematics. Schematics, of course, well, ecclesiastical is self-explanatory, the church, right? But schematics is a reference to a diagram or an illustration or the blueprints of the ecclesia, the ecclesia being the church of God with Christ Jesus as its head. Now, if, you were to, if, if someone were to ask you, you run into them at the store, or maybe you're taking a walk in the park, and they just absurdly come up to you unannounced, and they say, they say well, could you tell me, define the church? Because people do that. What would you say? I hear you're a Christian. What is the church? What would you say? How would you answer them? What blueprints would you give to help someone delineate and discern the difference between a church and that which is not a church? Because if the church is just we get together and hang out, well, a lot of people do that. You can do that on the golf course. You can do that on your back deck playing cards. People hang out all the time, and, and especially in some really 
questionable places. <laughs> but what's the difference between that which is, constitutes a church and that which isn't a church? How would you describe it? How would you di differentiate between a church and a, a social club? Now, my goal this morning is to give you some general parameters, uh, laying the foundation for the church, the ecclesia. And we're going to explore more of these things in detail as the series unfolds. But this is sort of just an overview uh, for sort of an introduction to the series itself. So let's look at our text here, Ephesians chapter 4. The Apostle Paul explains to the church at Ephesus that in his sovereign wisdom, God gave the church certain helps to aid her in maturation. That's what Paul is saying here to the church at Ephesus. God gave certain helps to make sure the church achieves maturation. In verse 11, we have a list. We have apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. John Calvin writes this, God, in accommodation to our infirmity, has added such helps and secured the effectual preaching of the gospel by depositing this treasure with the church. He has appointed pastors and teachers by whose lips he might edify his people. And he cites Ephesians 4.11 here. He has invested them, this is Calvin, he has invested them with authority and in short omitted nothing that, they, that might conduce to holy consent in the faith and to right order. In other words, there are gifts given to men in order to perpetuate the teaching of the gospel for the flourishing and advancement of the church. The office of apostle and prophet uh, fulfilled its purpose in AD 70, John the Baptist being the last prophet, though Jesus being the prophet that Moses had said would come in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 14-ish. Um, but those, an apostle was someone who saw the risen Christ, and so that phased out as well. But what was left behind? Well, God gave elders, pastors, teachers, and deacons. And I'm going to explain more of that in the coming weeks and what that's all about. The reason for these gifts and office functions lies in verse 12. Why did God give these to the church? Well, here, here's, they exist for the equipping of the saints... Paul says here, for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. That is, men are endowed with spiritual gifts. God gives gifts to his people. Um, not everybody's a teacher. Not everybody's a pastor. Um, not everybody has the gift of mercy. Not everybody has the gift of administration, the gift of helps. There's a lot of spiritual gifts listed in Romans and 1 Corinthians, but not everybody has the same gifts, but Peter tells us at least you have one gift God gave you by His Spirit, and so we here at Cross and Crown want you to exercise that. But men are endowed with spiritual gifts suited for those who exhibit maturation and calling, and that is for the express purpose of equipping God's people so that they might serve or minister to both God and neighbor. So when, when, when God gives these gifts to the church, they're, for, they're not an end in themselves. They're the, the gifts that we have are for the service of God and neighbor. So you utilize your gifts in the ecclesia, but you also utilize them in the world with your neighbor, with your coworkers, that sort of thing. Now, Christians must be taught what God demands of them. 
When a new convert comes along, they must be taught what God demands of them. And we don't need to loosen the blow on that. We just need to tell them. And pastors and teachers are called, they're called on to aid in that process. So what's, what's the goal? Well, he says in verses 12 and 13, the following. The building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the full knowledge of the Son of God to mature man, to the mature man, and to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As men, women, and children, we are equipped by the Word of God to perform works of service. Okay? That's, that's what we're supposed to do. What's God's will for my life? To serve people and to pour yourself out in that way. And they, as men, women, and children, they and the officers, when that happens, they build up the body of Christ, and they build up the body of Christ in the direction of unity, of knowledge, and maturity. Unity, knowledge, and maturity. Jesus Christ is the litmus test. He is the standard. He is the stature whom we must all imitate in godliness. We are supposed to be, I know it's shocking, right? We're Christians. We're supposed to be like Christ, (laughs) And you think, well, that's, an, that's a given, that's an obvious. Well, don't ever let that be a given for you. Because all of us are prone at any moment to not be like Christ in a split second. So the goal is maturity. The goal is maturity in the church, men, women, and children, converted to Christ, discipled in Christ, and then self-governed. Anytime there's a problem in the church is because someone has lost their self-governance. All right, that's, that's when problems arise. When you've lost self-government, you, you're not having government over your tongue, you're not having government over your mouth, your hands, your ears, all of it. When you lose self-government, that's when you start, you know, if your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault, Matthew 18. And when you lose self-government, that's when the wheels fall off. Now, if the church does its job, as I'm arguing, I think Paul makes this very clear here. If the church does its job, people will grow. Lives will be impacted by the gospel, and more and more are discipled as a result. So think of it like a cup. If the, if the cross and crown cup is full of maturation and godliness and holiness and encouragement, the fruit of the Spirit, all of it, and that spills over, it's only going to spill over into the world. But the minute you have, have people running wild in the church with, with guns a-blazing, you have holes in the cup and everything leaks out. We, we're, we're supposed to work from that cup, not hurt the cup. And that's what maturation is for. We're supposed to grow and mature, have self-government in every area of our lives, how we handle money, how we use our tongue, how we serve one another, um, once we grow and mature, that spills over into the world, and that's supposed to be an ongoing process. And if you think about it, as self-governed people, we want other people to be self-governed, because what's the problem with the world right now? No one's self-governed. So we're already entering into that presidential political season, and I'm already tired of it, (laughs) and we didn't even get started yet. But that's just, we lack self-government. We want the nanny state to take care of us, and, and we want to hide in our cocoon and not go out and preach self-government where it should be preached. So there's this, it ebbs and flows, this maturity thing. So a pipeline 
to switch metaphors, a pipeline of discipleship is formed when God's people labor in the world, reaping the spiritual harvest of gospel wakefulness and mission. Newsflash, people are supposed to come to Christ, and we're supposed to tell them to come to Christ. That's part of the mission. And then we disciple them, we train them, and then guess what? They go and do the same thing. Now, as a body, all members, Paul uses this phrase, body of Christ, all members must contribute so that the body functions in optimal capacity. Everybody must contribute, he says. When all of these joints and ligaments work together, the body is healthy. If we're not functioning at full throttle, we prove ourselves to be children. And what happens when a children is in the ocean and the waves are strong? What happens to adults, frankly? They're tossed by the waves. They're carried along by the wind of doctrine, false doctrine. They're easily beguiled and tricked by men, verse 14. When maturity, where maturity lacks, relationships are strained. Where maturity lacks, relationship, relationships are strained. Where maturity lacks, men and women and children, no one's exempt, are tossed around from one thing to the next, unable to make a decision and stick with it. They become duplicitous in their minds. They're half-hearted. They, they struggle with decision-making. They are frantically trying to manage their lives. Um, you know, it's like, how are things? I'm busy. I'm busy. I have tried so hard to stop saying that. It is a very hard thing to do. That's not a thing to glory in. That may indicate you are not doing Sabbath the way you're supposed to. But that's what happens when you're tossed to and fro. You're frantically trying to manage your lives and, and your social media accounts and, and jobs and responsibilities and diapers and dishes. And, and, but when, you, when, you, when, when you're immature, though, in those things, and you start to bump up against other people in the body, you drag down the body of Christ because you're blown from here to there. You're just on to the next thing and on to the next thing. And, and there's instability. You're not consistent. That's Paul's issue here. So immaturity, he says, is to be put away, and the visible church is a means of doing so. Godly submission to officers gleaning from their lives and their teaching is all part of the process. So how do we deal with them? How do we deal with these types of people? Well, we speak the truth in love, he says. We speak the truth in love. We, cor we correct our wayward brothers and sisters um, trying to, to be patient as best as we can in order to grow up into Christ, who is the head of this body we call the ecclesia. The whole body is guided by the head. The whole body is, is guided by the head. Christ holds us together using our individual gifts and roles so that the body is sustained for future growth and love. That's verses 15 and 16. Now, in one sense, you grow out of an individualism, right? We, go, we grow out of our individualism um, and into the corporate body of Christ. Now, in one sense, that's true. You're not just completely autonomous. You're, you're part of something by the bond of the Spirit. So in one sense, that is the case. You're always, you always remain an individual. You never lose that. You're always expected to exercise private judgment and indeed sound judgment. But water is thicker than blood. Water is thicker than blood. Baptism brings you into the visible church where you then grow together. And then, and what I mean by your individualism going away to some degree, 
you stop love doesn't insist on its own way stuff, right? You stop doing that. You start to love and you exhibit patience and forbearance with one another. So you lose sort of my way or the highway attitude and you gain, no, I'm not going to seek my own will, but the, but the good of others first. Things change when you come into the church. So we don't, and I want to make this point clear, we do not pursue unity first and foremost. We don't have to pursue unity. We steward unity. We don't pursue it. We steward it. And either we're mature in how we handle ourselves or we're not. So we've been given the unity. And this is John 17. If you want to read it later, go ahead. We've been given the unity. The unity that we have by the Spirit in Christ is the same unity that Christ has with the Father and the Spirit. So we have the unity that we need. We don't have to constantly be on, on the treadmill of we have to be unified in every single way. And that's not true. We steward the unity that we already possess and have. And again, either we mat we're mature in how we handle ourselves or we're not. After all, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 5, love does not insist on its own way. And thus, our own individual willpower should always be tempered and composed for the sake of our communal growth and identity. And as we saw in 2nd and 3rd John, balancing truth and love is the key to church growth and sanctification. Now, I have another quote. Calvin, I think, helps us here. He says this, All the elect of God are so joined together in Christ that as they depend on one head, so they are, as it were, compacted into one body, being knit together like its different members, made truly one by living together under the same Spirit of God in one faith, hope, and charity, called not only to the same inheritance of eternal life, but to participate in one God and Christ. So we are brought together and unified in Christ that's our common ground. That is the unity. And so we steward that, and then God expects us with maturity and growth, we stop being tossed around, and our lives look more consistent. And we stick with the old ancient paths, and we stick with them, and we thus help grow the body. And that stewardship of unity gives us greater unity. Now that's a quick look at the text. We're going to dig into some more of that momentarily. But as I always ask, how shall we then live? I want to zoom out a bit and give you a broader look at the doctrine of the church so we can see this thing as a whole. When we speak of the church, we need to be able to know exactly what we mean. Because perhaps if you were put on the spot, maybe you wouldn't know exactly what to say or how to phrase it, and you might, words might come out and it might be loosely connected, but maybe you would struggle with it. So I want to make sure that we understand what we're talking about with, with the church. Many people feel that even the English word church is, is itself misleading. I think they're the reasons are interesting, but I don't think we need to throw it out as long as, long as we know what we mean when we say it. Now, in a, for example, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word kahal means meeting together for an appointment. Kahal or coming together at an appointed place. This is the kahal of Yahweh. And typically we see this translated in the Old Testament as the assembly of the congregation. That's in Exodus 12, verse 6. The assembly of the congregation. The Greek word ekklesia was generally understood to come from this idea of the kahal in Hebrew. 
And this is in conjunction with the Grecian, the Greco-Roman, it was more like a Greek concept, this cultural understanding of ecclesia being a political gathering of sorts. So when the ecclesia assembled, there was like this political aspect to it, at least in, in the Grecian culture. Ecclesia, the Greek word, and Jesus uses it first in, uh, in Matthew 19. Ecclesia means, uh, or Matthew 18 rather, Ecclesia means called out. And in Greek, ek, ek, just means out. But you have called out, or you're the called out ones. Sometimes it's translated as the meeting. That's Acts 19, verse 41. So when you see the Greek word ekklesia in the New Testament, sometimes it's translated as meeting or the church. The other New Testament word is synagogue, which means to bring together. And obviously that's where the word synagogue comes from. But it's not used as often as ecclesia, but it does speak of the assembly or the gathering for some fellowship for, for worship. That's James chapter 2, verse 2. James uses that Greek word describing the church like a synagogue, synagogue. Now the LSB translates it as assembly, which is fine. I think, frankly, that that's when we think of church, we should think assembly. You can, get, you can nuance it. We're the called out assembly of God's people. You know, there's debate. I mean, obviously, English is English, Greek is Greek. And so you try to work with what you have. But the church is an assembly. The church is a reference to a political, Jesus is Lord, and religious, Jesus is Savior, assembly. It's a political and religious assembly. We are under the, under the banner of Jesus Christ, our King, and Jesus is not just our King, but He is our priest. He's our mediator. So there's a religious aspect to it. There's a political aspect to it. I'm going to come back to that in a moment. The ecclesia is the gathered people of God in an assembled, organized fashion. So if you don't like organized religion, you will not find this to be pleasing. Go for your disorganized one. That seems to be the... The religion du jour. Now, it's considered to be a local expression of the visible church. When we think of the uh, assembly, like cross and crown, this is an expression of the visible church. And it can be whether we're gathered for worship, that's 1 Corinthians eleven eighteen, or not. It could not be necessarily a reference to a specific time of worship, but it could be just a broad explanation of the church. That's Galatians 1, verse 2. Sometimes it can refer to people meeting in a home, Romans 16, 23. The singular form of the word can be used to describe a grouping of several different churches. That's Acts 9, verse 31. It can also describe the universal church all over the world, 1 Corinthians 12, 28. And it can be the invisible for all time church, the church from Adam all the way to today. That's Ephesians 1, 22. Thus, the word, the word church, the ecclesia, carries with it a multifaceted, multi-perspectival conceptualization. It's broader than just saying, this is the church and that's it. The church has many layers to it, as we'll see shortly. In other words, let me say it this way. The Bible describes it several different ways and oftentimes uses different words similarly or, and even interchangeably. 
The assembly of the way, that is the ecclesia, that is the church. The assembly of the way refers to being called out from the world, called into the congregation of God's people for the purposes of God's ever-expanding kingdom. You've not been called out of the world into the congregation for yourself. None of us exist here for the sake of ourselves. We exist to please our master, our captain, our savior, our Lord. Now this, this looks like several different things. We think of reading the book of Acts, especially, especially the book of Acts, but it looks like Lord's Day worship when the people of God gather together. It also looks like general Christian mission when you're doing evangelism, uh, agitation, evangitation, both things together sometimes. It looks like the people assembled to worship God and then scattered for the kingdom. Our assembly is brought together by Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit so that we might be a people who do his will and carry his work out in the world. Uh, Wilhelmus Abrakel says it this way, Christ only dwells in the true church. Only there by his spirit is he engaged in the work of conversion, consolation, and sanctification. Now, the Bible uses several different metaphors to describe the church. Perhaps the most well-noted and well-known is the fact that we are the body of Christ. Paul uses that several times in Ephesians. We are the body of Christ. We here locally are the body of Christ. That's 1 Corinthians 12, 27. And collectively, the people of God, the invisible, invisible church, are the body of Christ. So it's not wrong to say we here at Cross and Crown are the body of Christ. Just be careful when you say the and don't say, we are the body of Christ, and everybody else that exists in the world, they're all the false church. They're, we call that a cult. <laughs> that's, how, that's what happens. But here locally we are, but collectively, the Christians everywhere, my friends in Zambia, the Christians in Russia, Christians in China, everywhere Christians are, that's the body of Christ as well. Now the image here speaks to our relationship to one another. We are the body. And it speaks of our relationship to Christ, who is said to be the head of the church. He is the head. He is the source. He is the, the life-sustaining um, source of all things. He is the head. We are the body. We are an organic organism. We are living and breathing creatures, moving and reproducing, living our lives. Another metaphor comes from the temple era. The Apostle Paul identifies God's people as being the temple of the Holy Spirit. What is the church? Well, we're the body of Christ, but we're also the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's 1 Corinthians 3, 16. Not a God who can be contained and said to dwell in temples made by human hands. He will not be isolated and sequestered by men. God is said to dwell within his people, making them a temple sanctuary of the living God. You individually are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Together, we at Cross and Crown are, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And universally, the church is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Paul says earlier, you can flip there if you want, in Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2, 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and sojourners, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. There's a word he uses there. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building 
he's talking about us, the whole building being joined together is growing into a holy sanctuary in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So we're a temple. We're a household. We're a building. The church is a building in the sense when we think of spiritually speaking. God is our Father, the church is our mother, and as distinguished hosts of the Holy Spirit, we are God's holy house. The Shekinah glory, once located in the temple, is now in us, individually, but not merely individual. Collectively, but not merely collective. In 1 Timothy 3.15, we find that the church is the household of God, which is the church of the living God. Paul says, the pillar and support of the truth. The church is God's deposit of truth in the world. We are guardians of truth. What is the church supposed to do? We guard the truth. We're guardians of the truth. We're protectors of that which is true, that which is good, that which is beautiful. We are truth believers and we are truth defenders. And as such, we take thoughts captive and make them obedient to King Jesus. 2 Corinthians 10.5. Louis Burkhoff also identifies one other descriptive of the church. And this is an important one to know because people misunderstand this. But the church is also the Jerusalem above. That is Galatians 4.26. We are also the new Jerusalem, Revelation 21, verse 2. Or we are the heavenly Jerusalem. That is Hebrews 12.22. So Galatians 4.26, the Jerusalem above. We are the new Jerusalem, Revelation 21.2. We are the heavenly Jerusalem, Hebrews 12.22. The heavenly Jerusalem is Mount Zion, the city of the living God. And in the Bible... The church is the spiritual analog of earthly Jerusalem. So when you read the Old Testament, there's this emphasis on Jerusalem. Well, it's, it's, it's an analog to the church. You, Hebrews says, have come to Mount Zion. We're, we're not spiritual pilgrims displaced on the earth. The earth is our home. I mean, it's not quite ready yet. We have a lot of work to do, a lot of cleaning up, sweeping the floors. But the church is our home. And in Revelation, it's more, and I learned this from Vishal Mangawadi, he said people get obsessed with Revelation. And when's Christ coming? The coming that's in Revelation is the church. That's the beautiful imagery of the bride adorned for this moment. The church is constantly descending from, from heaven. As heaven regenerates and converts and disciples, the church grows and grows and grows. And that heavenly Jerusalem descends to infiltrate the earth. So you have come to Mount Zion. You are the heavenly Jerusalem. Now, as intimated earlier, theologians have delineated between the invisible church. When we say invisible church, we mean the church as God sees her, containing only true regenerate believers for all time. That's the invisible church. But we also have the visible church, those who profess the true religion, with some outward manifestation of covenantal commitment. We have the visible church here. And as we reflect on these two things, the invisible, visible church, theologians also delineate and identify the militant church versus the church triumphant. So the militant church refers to the church on earth battling evil, while, while the triumphant church refers to the church that's in heaven, basking in the glory of God for all of eternity. 
From another perspective, the church can be described as having an organi- uh, this organized um, aspect as well. Think about how the church is organized as an organism, a flesh and blood communion of believers living real life for the kingdom yet against the world. We are human beings. We are made in the image of God. We have flesh and blood. So that's one aspect of it. And yet there's also an institutional aspect to it as well. An organized and functional structure with officers, offices, and legal parameters in place. So the ecclesia of God consists of the effectually called, elected by grace, people. Again, Calvin says it this way. The church consists of all those who, by the mercy of God the Father, through the efficacy of the Holy Spirit, have become partakers with Christ, are set apart as the proper and peculiar possession of God, and that as we are of the number, we are also partakers of this great grace. So we are people, effectually called, sovereignly elected, set apart from sin by God and for God in order to be schooled in the church of Christ with the express purpose of discipling the nations for the glory and supremacy of God. While there are temple overtones used throughout the New Testament, sometimes used to describe the activities of the church, and when we talk later about worship and liturgy and what that means, you'll hear all about that. There are a lot of temple overtones. But in the New Testament, the synagogue model was most certainly the prevailing model for various assemblies. After the Babylonian exile, synagogues popped up all over the place. You had to have a certain number of Jewish leaders. You had to have certain parameters in place. But remember, the temple was destroyed. So what do you do when your center of worship is destroyed? Well, you rethink some things. And Jews gathered in synagogues, and they did, they did it so that they could read from God's word, so that they could sing together, so that they could pray together. They would structure themselves in terms of a God-centered culture. So you couldn't go to the temple to offer sacrifice. The temple is gone. So what do you do? You go to synagogue. You gather with God's people. You sing. You pray. You worship God. And that was the synagogue model that basically became the church. Now, Old Testament religion was Torah-centered rather than temple-centered. When, when, the, when the temple's gone, you come and you learn from Torah, the teaching of God's law. Now, our Lord Jesus, you'll remember, he spent time in various synagogues. In fact, he stood up in Luke 4, read from Isaiah, and they wanted to run him out and kill him. But he gathered in the synagogue. The, uh, Paul did as well. The apostles did it too. They were traveling evangelists. They were going to the synagogues and teaching about Christ. But these assemblies developed. The church grew. And what happens when the church grows? You have to think things differently. Their systems change. Administration changes. Um, they, they developed courts and schools. Uh, when the Christians took this model, they ate the sacred meal together, the Lord's Supper. They issued baptism. They began to infiltrate the world, showing hospitality while encouraging business and enterprise. They developed a culture, a local church, visible church culture. As as a royal priesthood, the church, also considered to be a holy nation by Peter, is a chosen family in God's possession whose job, whose main job, is to faithfully discharge the Father's commands in the world. Now, a few more things as we close here. In the reformed stream of things, 
of which we here at Cross and Crown swim in, in the Reformed stream, the marks of a true church, the thing that makes a church a church, are as follows. The Word of God preached and heard, the sacraments administered correctly, and the faithful exercise of church discipline. That is generally the Reformed understanding of what makes a church a church, what makes it different than you just hanging out with your friends at home. It is the true preaching of sound doctrine that helps us understand things like the Lord's Supper and baptism. And without those things, these judicial things, there could be no discipline. Discipline would be nothing. I would also add to this formulation a secondary aspect, namely a kingdom-focused orientation that takes seriously the Great Commission, that takes seriously our job as the people of God in seeing to it that the gospel flourishes in the world. We'll unpack more of that during the rest of the series. But as it pertains to us, Cross and Crown Church, Cross and Crown Ecclesia, we exist for a very specific reason, and it's summed up in this, and it's always on the front of your bulletin to remind you week in and week out. We exist for the purpose of training men, women, and children to press the crown rights of King Jesus into every area of life, to press the crown rights of Jesus into your homes, with, with your educating your children, pressing the crown rights into the culture, into the realm of politics, you name it. That's why we exist. All of Christ for all of life. And Christ is most certainly all. Christ made us. He called us. He changed our hearts. He trains us, matures us, and establishes us by his grace. He brings us together in order to grow us into the people we are called to be. Remember, it is his gospel that forgives our sins and grants us new life. It is his gospel that renews us and makes us into the image of Christ. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Psalm 100 verse 3. Having purchased us by the blood of his son, the father adopts us to be his sons and daughters. We are the true family of God. Having secured our redemption by coming to serve and not to be served, the son renews us, turning us into servants. Having renewed us, the Spirit equips us with the power of the gospel, sending us out as missionaries to proclaim the excellencies of the one who called us out of darkness. We are a family of servant missionaries. That is who you are. That is your identity. Pound that into your brain until your heart believes it. We are a family of servant missionaries, the ecclesia of God, united in Christ, striving to love one another as Christ loved the church, who gave himself up for her. Glory be to God. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for the grace and gift of your gospel. Thank you that you have brought us near to you, that we can participate together in this beautiful bond of peace. Father, I, I pray that these words from Paul, the words of scripture proclaimed today, would be deeply embedded in, in our consciousness. That it would be deeply embedded in our hearts so that we would not be tossed to and fro, that we would remain steadfast, that indeed you, Christ, are the anchor, that you would hold us in the midst of storm, in the midst of turmoil and tribulation. We ask that your spirit would knit us together into the body you have called us to be with you, Jesus, as our head. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.